I'm Sterling Fox. Julie Wong is driving, and our first guest is Professor Jean-Hugues Roy from the School of Media at the University of Quebec in Montreal. He is the author of a piece available to you at theconversation.com entitled Facebook versus Australia. Canadian media could be the next target for a ban. Professor Roy, Jean-Hugues, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Nice to speak with you this morning. Well, it's great to have you with us. And boy, this is a topic that uh, many Canadians are, are looking at very seriously. Can you give us a sort of a, uh, an elevator short version of what has happened mm-hmm. so far in Australia? Yeah. What, what, what brought this on in the first place? The government of Australia said enough to Facebook. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Well, yeah, the uh, Australian government had a bill which, which, since I wrote this piece, has been turned into law. Uh, it, it was called it's called the Mandatory Bargaining Code, and it it forces Google and Facebook in Australia to bargain uh, with the media publishers there a the um, a, a, a you know to, to 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 make sure that Google and Facebook share some of their revenues in Australia mm-hmm. with the local media businesses. Um, so. Uh, since I wrote this article, the, the, the situation has changed. But when, when I wrote it, the, the, there was a media ban on February 17. Uh, you know, it was news that, that that resounded around the world. Yes, Facebook blocked news content, Australian news content, from its platform. Uh, even from Canada, we could not access uh, the Melbourne Age, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, any Australian media, even the conversation. It's a way that, you know the conversation is a website for um, where professors mainly uh, write pieces. Mm-hmm. But it, since it had, it started out in Australia, even the Canadian versions, the the English Canadian and the French Canadian versions, were not shareable. Content was not. We were not able to share. Uh, our articles uh, on Facebook. So Facebook just completely, completely stopped all news input into its site and therefore the rest of the world from Australia. Exactly. Okay. But since uh, the the Australian government changed its law, um, it enabled, and it has since passed last uh, Thursday, it it was turned into law. And one thing they changed, they said that if Google and Facebook uh, showed that they were negotiating in good faith with local news media businesses uh, to sign deals, well, they could escape the application of the mandatory bargaining that was uh, late, that was uh, described in the law. So, there is a law, and so so the, 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 that's how the, the crisis was ended. Uh, Facebook, uh, Google had already signed some deals with with local uh, businesses, mainly right. News Corp, and Facebook started doing the same in the, in uh, the days after that. So they they showed you know they they had they, they were negotiating in good faith. Right. So uh, the bill was signed and turned into law, but the law the the the, the yeah the bargaining. Uh, mechanism that 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 is described by the law does not apply. <laughs> uh, does not does not uh, so 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 so. In the end, it was a it was a uh, it was a sac- satisfactory ending for for 
uh, for all parties and in, in, for well <laughs> you'd have to ask google and facebook yeah i suppose <laughs> so Jean, you, for uh, the news business is it's a good it's good news exactly so that's and that's the of course i'm in the news business here and and a lot mm-hmm. of canadians are consumers of news and many canadians uh consume news not from uh, ctv or cbc or, or global or any of those other uh, known news sites a lot of canadians and, and news consumers around the world use social media platforms to go mm-hmm. for their news a lot of people use twitter for news and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, the idea here was, though, that Facebook uh, was providing news content on its site and not and making lots and lots of money to the tune of many billions. And, and that's in Australia alone, let alone worldwide. So they're making all of this money by providing news content for people to read on Facebook. And of course, the ads surrounding all of that content are where they make their money. So Facebook is making gobs of money from the ads. Uh, they're using news media content, and they're not they're not sharing any of the mega billions they're making, not a dime of it, with the media who's providing them most of their content. This is the argument from the media, both in Australia, Jean-Hugues, and also here in Canada. Exactly. You know how much money uh, Facebook made in Canada in 2020 selling ads? No idea. <laughs> $2.8 billion Canadian dollars wow. in 2020. So to me... so. I understand part of the argument of Facebook is that, well, the media, it's the media themselves that, <clears throat> that put content on our, you know, their Facebook pages. We don't, you know, we don't force any media to, you know, to, to share their, their media on our platform. They do it uh, uh, on their own. So why should we pay them? <laughs> That's what Facebook says. <clears throat> and yeah, I understand that. But aren't um, they? Um, but, and I understand. And mm-hmm. I'm just I'm playing devil's advocate mm-hmm. with you here because yeah. I've heard some of these arguments before. And and, mm-hmm. and and they say you know they say well the news the news media and and the news agencies publish their news anyway. We're simply reproducing it. But it's it's the mm-hmm. act it's the act of reproducing mm-hmm. material that they don't own. That's the objectionable mm-hmm. point, right? And they don't pay for, and you know, producing news is, is yes, it's, it costs a lot of money to 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 dig, you know, for news. Absolutely. And, uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, 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 um, uh, there are studies that show that throughout throughout the years, in the last twelve years, Facebook has um, uh, has asked, you know, when when Facebook was a a young business, you know, sharing stuff between its 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 subscribers yeah. for and it's for for to have quality content. Facebook, um, you know, asked news media to 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 create their pages to to share news so that yeah, you, its its subscribers would have more more interesting uh, things to share than just what they ate. For for dinner last night, you know, or sure, <laughs> just, sure. Uh, pictures of pictures of babies and cats and stuff like that. Uh, sure. So um, the and the and the and the news businesses said, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll try to make sure our journalism reaches our readers, our public, where they are. Mm-hmm. And since there are more and more more and more of them are on Facebook, let's do it. Let's do it. It'll bring some. Uh, traffic to our web website where we could, uh, where the news businesses could could sell ads. Sure, it was a win-win deal uh, in uh, you know in, in uh, around the years two two thousand and ten. But 
as Facebook and Google also um, monopolize the digital ad market, they now they now uh, control seventy eight percent of the digital ad market in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, where and uh, as the years pass, the value of ads, the um, news businesses themselves sold on their websites uh, dropped. Yes. Uh, so even though it, it's a paradox, the, the traffic on the media website is, uh, has grown in the last, uh, since 2017, between 2017 and 2020, 80, the, the traffic on news websites in Canada has grown 80%, mm-hmm. but the, the, their revenues have keep, <laughs> has kept falling and falling, falling. So, yeah. Some of so so my argument is some of the uh, those 2.8 billion uh, Facebook made in Canada last year. Some of that money come is is is, is from uh, journalism content, and I've always been trying trying to evaluate estimate what proportion of that of those monies come from journalistic content, and I've. Um, Devised a framework to uh, to evaluate it. I've I've, I've uh, taken a sample of two million Facebook posts in, okay. uh, in 2020. Um, one in five of those posts have been uh, put on Facebook by media sites, mm. you know, by by media pages such as CKNW, uh, sure. <laughs> the uh, the Chilliwack, you know, uh, small papers. And uh, but uh, so I'm not saying that 20 percent of Facebook's revenue are from journalistic content. I also looked at interactions, you know, sharing, uh, liking, and all those uh, things we can do on Facebook. Only 7% of the total interactions in 2020 were on media pages. So that's how I estimate that 7% of 2.8 billion is from uh, was made from journalistic content. So Interesting. that equates to, yeah, that, that, that amounts to $210 million in 2020. That uh, was foregone by Canadian media that could easily have been paid to them as a percentage of the uh, Facebook exposure that they received. I'm I'm not saying that Facebook should give $210 million. I'm saying that that's the value value. of them for for Facebook. Exactly. Some some of that should trickle down back to journalism. Our guest from the School of Media at the University of Quebec at Montreal is Professor Jean-Hugues Roy, who's writing a, written a story at theconversation.com about Facebook in Australia, the big battle down there, and says Canadian media could be the next target for a Facebook ban. Now, that ban didn't last very long, Professor Roy, uh, but it was the impetus that got the government First of all, to the legislative process to uh, form and uh, pass a bill that is still essentially a framework for negotiation. But nonetheless, that ban, they just canceled access to uh, 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 Australians of any of their news sources on Facebook. And as that ban was declared, Professor Wa, coincidentally, you were involved in a long conversation with the head of Facebook here in Canada. Did you talk about the Australian ban? Yes, of course. Yeah, I was talking with Kevin Chan uh, the day that the ban was implemented in Australia. Yeah, and um, he was uh, yeah he was adamant about that. He, he, 
he said that yeah we we he said he was working very hard not the, the, the a similar situation to happen in Canada so um, yeah he did not exclude a ban but now that since I've I've published the piece the the, the situation may have changed you know the the, the the Facebook has put some water in it in its wine yes as we say in French mm-hmm. yes <laughs> and uh, it compromised somewhat on its position and uh, maybe I don't know if uh, if it would compromise also in Canada but you know it, it looks that like a ban on news content in Canada uh, looks more remote um, and but the, the the Canadian government is also uh, has been steadfast I mean it, it, it uh, when Heritage Minister Stephen Gilbo has said that he would pass a law a similar to what has been passed in Australia right, yeah. later on later on in 2021. So, um, <clears throat> and I know that there are discussions. I've been invited to, to um, deputy minister ministerial um, uh, you know, meetings and. Uh, uh, you know, it's not just heritage that that's involved. Also, the you know, industry Canada is involved. Of course, Canada. Yeah, and um, they they we don't know what a similar bill, similar legislation in Canada would look like. But I know that uh, yeah, the federal government has been inspired by what has been going on in Australia, also in France. Yes, we know that uh, France and Germany, particularly among the the EU members, are paying very close attention to this, along with the United Mm -hmm. Kingdom and the USA, to say nothing Mm -hmm. of Canada. So you're being you're Mm -hmm. being a consultant to the government of Canada as they consider legislation to deal with Facebook and Google. And I wanted to ask you about that, Mm -hmm. Jean Hugues, because you talked about a two point eight billion dollar. Uh, profit uh, by by profit. Facebook re- revenues revenue revenues. sorry revenue yeah, on an annual yeah, yeah. basis by Facebook. How much does Google make by comparison? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2020, Google's uh, Google's ad ad revenues in Canada were 4.7 billion. Oh my! So yeah, yeah, it's uh, digital. So they 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 yeah they basically uh, own 78 percent of the uh, digital ad market. So um, yeah, they're 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 pretty pretty impressive. No kidding. And yet Google Google decided to come to the table sooner than mm-hmm. Facebook. Is it because mm-hmm. of the different nature of the way Google uh, pre- shares news? Mm-hmm. And also shares its revenue. Google has a greater, uh, better history of, of sharing its uh, its uh, its revenues. With creators of with content creators okay. you know, on on uh, YouTube, yeah, you got many Canadians who now own a living mm-hmm. uh, thanks to the content they, they put up on, on on YouTube. So so Google uh, shares it better. But you you, I I don't know. We never heard of Facebookers. You know, people who would <laughs> earn a living sharing content on Facebook or or Instagrammers. We know influencers on Instagram. Yes, but it's not face. It's not Facebook who pays them. It's you know it's it's uh, brands um, who 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 uh, give uh, who pay who pay influencers on Facebook. So Facebook has a much less um, yeah uh, has a sh- does not share its revenues with content creators. Uh, uh, there might we we I think we've seen a shift in Facebook's attitude last week. 
uh, in Australia. Well, I think that Facebook is finally coming to terms with the fact that they they can't always just get away with doing exactly as they please. And so far, Mm -hmm. they've had pretty Mm -hmm. wide free range to do just that and make Mm -hmm. just enormous amounts of money, absurd amounts Mm -hmm. of money in Mm -hmm. the process. And, you know, full full marks to the entrepreneurship of the whole of the whole exercise but still mm-hmm. they, there is there is a, a, a threshold and the australians mm-hmm. have helped to define what that threshold is mm-hmm. and, and governments uh, around the world especially uh, 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 those uh, in the western mm-hmm. societies are very keen to follow what australia is doing because uh, yep. in, in some way are you in, in agreement jean at least with the mm-hmm. concept that facebook mm-hmm. does owe something to the news mm-hmm. people uh, the, whose content it uses to attract advertisers and viewers. Well, I think it's it would be to in Facebook's interest to share some of its revenue with the yeah the news industry. Um, if I was wondering if if there would would have been a ban on on journalistic content in uh, on Facebook in Canada, what would happen? Um, well, I think it would be detrimental to Facebook. I think less and less people would. Return to Facebook. Good point. As uh, yeah, as uh, since if if Facebook is just used to share to entertain us, um, will we will more you know will, will as much as many Canadians come back to it? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, sharing and discussing news is a part of a, the Facebook experience. So yeah, it's in Facebook's interest. But you know, another thing I. I want to that 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 that's, uh, that preoccupies me is a criticism of uh, the Facebook uh, the, the, the 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 Australian law rather was that it would only um, uh, serve News Corp's interest. News Corp is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Sure, the Australian. So, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and that that's something that that um, I think uh, it could be. Um, something we should try to avoid in Canada. You know, we don't need, we would not, uh, we would need a, a deal, a law, a legislation that would, you know, help journalism thrive, not news businesses thrive. Right. You see, you see the difference? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, Post Media, which, uh, who, who own both uh, Vancouver's dailies, <laughs> for right. instance, you know, they've posted a, a 16.2 million loss in 2020. Yes. But, I've checked their uh, financial documents, and I realized that the, their top five executives uh, allocated themselves bonuses mm-hmm. on top of their salaries of two million dollars. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I would like uh, to, if, if, the, if a law is passed in Canada, uh, I would not like it to 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 to, to see it. Uh, uh, Enrich exactly, and it's a pretty yeah, it's a pretty safe bet that those five execs who make two seven figure mm-hmm. salaries probably mm-hmm. in the entire year last year probably didn't between them write one news story. Of course, no, <laughs> no, but, and and they, yeah, they, they they I suppose media invested in journalism 
not much. <laughs> so a final question to you, Professor Wan. We're grateful for your time to, with us this morning. This is fascinating stuff, and a lot of Canadians, millions of us are talking about this because millions of us use the Facebook platform. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and are you comfortable or confident, because you are involved in the process already as a consultant, are you comfortable with the notion that there will be a deal that's satisfactory, reasonably satisfactory mm-hmm. to all parties in Canada? Can we cut some a good deal here. It would all. It's going to depend of when our the next elections are called. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that that's the if if elections are called early on in spring or June, uh, they, the, the the federal government might not have time enough to to table a bill. If uh, if elections are called rather in the fall, then yeah, we, we might see a satisfactory uh, deal. Uh, fact, uh, legislation tabled and that would turn into uh, yeah, uh, legislation that, that would uh, help sure. uh, finance journalism in Canada. Indeed, it would be an accomplishment mm-hmm. that the government could sell as part of its vote for, vote for me package too, yeah, wouldn't it? maybe. Yeah, I hope, yeah, hopefully, yeah, <laughs> it would be a great uh, selling point for me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting read, friends. Our guest, uh, Professor Jean Huguois from the University of Quebec at Montreal, has written a piece entitled Facebook versus Australia. Canadian media could be the next target for a ban uh, because that's what it took to get the wheels turning down under. Uh, will we get some successful results here in Canada? One can only hope, and one can uh, perhaps cross our fingers that Professor Wah's input gets the gets the job done. Jean-Hugues, thanks so much for this. It's a pleasure to have had you on the show. Thank you for having me, Sterling. Good deal, sir. And we'll talk again because this is far from over. I look forward to another chance to pick up the conversation. Have a great Sunday. You too. Professor Jean-Hugues at the University of Quebec in Montreal. Jason Tetro is on the line. Mr. Tetro has been in the scientific community for over 30 years. He's written a couple of books entitled The Germ Code and The Germ Files. So to no one's surprise in the scientific community, he's known as the germ guy. And he's also the host of the super awesome science show on the Curious Cast Network. Jason, a very popular guest here on CKNW. Back with us today to talk about uh, vaccines we've approved a new one in canada and the americans just approved yet another one yesterday jason tetro good morning and welcome back hey it's great to be with you it's good to have you with us jason uh gonna open up the phone lines julie we promised our, our listeners we would do that as soon as we made contact with jason so if you have vaccine questions i have a few you must have a few of your of your own 604-280-9898 again 604-280-9898 jason canada approved two types of astrazeneca one from the uk and one from india on friday is there any difference between the two um, not really. What happens is that you have a technology and then that technology can be used in different places. Now, this particular version of the vaccine is not like Pfizer or Moderna. It's not an mRNA inside of a fat molecule. It's actually a uh, vector. It's known as an adenovirus. And you've probably heard of that. It's, it's like the common cold, mm-hmm. except that it's an adenovirus that infects uh, chimpanzees. And so it would not do anything um, to us in terms of harm. 
and they've put inside of that chimpanzee adenovirus the uh, coding for the spike protein, that knobby bit that you see on the coronavirus. Oh, sure. Okay, right. Okay. And then so what happens is the virus gets into your body or into your cells, and then it basically forces your cells to make this spike protein. So very similar to what a common cold would do. And then it produces the spike protein. It's then presented to the immune system. And then the immune system does whatever it does to be able to memorize it. Now, when it's done in two different locations, like we are seeing with respect to uh, this particular vaccine, you have to get different approvals. Gotcha. So the one that's coming out from AstraZeneca is uh, the one of them. And then the other one is actually coming from what is known as the Serum Institute in India. Mm-hmm, right. Um, it's pretty much the same thing. They seem to have very similar um, effectiveness. And uh, again, very few, if any, actual side effects that we've noticed based on the clinical trials. So even though it's two different uh, approvals, it's basically the same thing. And are both of these uh, newly approved by Health Canada drugs, Jason, are both of these, as is the case with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines already approved, are these new ones also best when done twice? At this point, we are still saying yes, because that's what the clinical trials have been showing. However, one of the ways that this particular uh, vaccine or these vaccines got approval was they actually um, gave Health Canada data that had come after they were approved and were starting to be used in the general public. And when that happened, what some of the researchers were actually seeing was that even one dose, if it was extended out even to uh, 12 weeks, apparently was giving a lot of very good protection. Okay. Now, again, the monograph says you need to be getting that second dose, but yes. you probably could get that first dose and stay relatively well protected well into uh, the point where everybody has a vaccine and then we can start do- doling out the boosters. More importantly, this is actually helpful because if we do end up having to worry about, you know, generation two, three, four of a of a vaccine as a result of protection against variants, um, then you start off with one dose. And then as time goes on and we have new variations or generations of the vaccine, you just get those. So it's really working in our favor. Okay. Now, a quick question for you. Marcus is going to join us in a second with a question of his own. But this one came up yesterday. We were talking about your appearance with us this morning. And I just sort of of came off the end of my tongue as I was speaking. Suppose, Jason, and this comes up a lot. I've heard people talking about this. Suppose you get, uh, you're up and your turn comes up and you get the Moderna vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now, as I understand it, uh, one of the two is 21 days. The other is 28. So I'm supposed to come back either three or four weeks later for that follow-up all-important second shot. So I get a Moderna shot. And then when my turn comes up a few weeks later, uh, just before they stick the needle in my arm, uh, I'm told that it's the Pfizer that I'm going to be getting. Is that mm-hmm. is is it uh, now I'm crossing brands, so to speak, because I don't know yeah. the scientific term for it. Is it as effective if I mix my vaccines to get that second shot? It's not like mattresses. Um, you can't mix and, mix and match. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, no, no. It's, um, but a lot of people are wondering, Jason. I mean, you must have oh, been asked yeah. this before. Yeah, and and the thing is that while the actual spike protein, um, it's called a full length prefusion spike protein, okay. is 
essentially the same amongst all the vaccines. Because of the different types of delivery systems, you may end up having changes in the way that that spike protein is presented to the immune system, depending on the brand. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to Pfizer and Moderna, the really interesting thing is that both of them basically have had the same ancestor in terms of their delivery system, which was the University of British Columbia. Okay. Long story. You can get into that later. Um, but they had their own little changes here and there, intellectual property patents. So as a result of that, you really don't want to be mixing and matching okay. because each one is separate in its in its the way that it, its mechanism works and also in the way that it presents that spike protein to your immune system. So stick with what you got for now. And then as we move down the road and we get more testing, we'll be able to find out if those you know extra boosters or, or generations of uh, vaccines can be switched later on. So Jason, when we finally get the call, and in BC, it'll start with, as is the case in Ontario, with persons in their 80s and over, and they'll start getting notifications this week and so on. And we will soon in BC. So when mm -hmm. our turn comes, no matter when, when that happens, it's important for each person to pay attention, uh, serious attention, to the type of vaccine you're going to get. Yes, you're, you're going to go to the pharmacy at such and such a street at 10 o'clock on Tuesday. Have a nice day. So when you get there, it's important to ask, what am I getting? Isn't it? Yeah, especially in this particular case. Uh, I know that when it comes to the flu vaccine, uh, even though you may not realize it, there's about four or five different versions that you can get. And they choose whichever one happens to be best um, indicated for your age group or, or category, whatever it may be. Okay. But you normally don't hear about that. You don't see that. All you see is a shot going into your arm. Right. In this particular case, especially in this first generation of COVID vaccines, it's really imperative that you become part of the process. Mm -hmm. So you're not just rolling up your sleeve. You're asking, what brand am I getting? You're asking, how much am I getting? And also you're asking, when should I be thinking of calling in for my second dose? Right. Now, theoretically, it should be 21 for Pfizer, 28 for Moderna, right. and about 28 for the, uh, for the AstraZeneca. But they may not say that. They may say, you know, you'll probably have to tr check in in about five weeks or six weeks or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. That is what has been okayed by the federal government and also by the provincial government. So don't be of too worried if they want you to be a bit longer than what it might say on the monograph. Okay, but fair and, and a very important point. However, when you do, when your turn does come up, please make uh, make sure you know what what kind of shot you've just had. Yeah, absolutely. Jason Tetro from the Super Awesome Science Show, our infectious disease expert, joining us again this morning. Uh, Marcus had a question for you, which he left with Julie. I'll get to that in a second. Jason, Marilyn is on the line from Port Coquitlam with a question for you. Marilyn, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead to Jason Tetro, please. Yes, my question is, my husband and I are both in our 70s, and we're hoping to get the Pfizer vaccine and um, hopefully the second shot before the summer. My question is, we have two young grandchildren that are in uh, elementary school. Will we be able to be with them for the summer? Will it be safe for them and us? That's a fair question, too. Jason, uh, would that be after the second shot more likely to be yes than after the first? What do you think? 
Yeah. So the second shot is going to give you that extra sense of protection uh, because what it does is it literally boosts uh, the protection that you have inside of your body. Your immune system simply is put into uh, overdrive and gets really good, good and ready to be able to fight off this virus should you come into uh, exposure to it. Now, if you have only the one shot, after 15 days, it's not so bad. After 28 days, it's actually doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. Now, whether you decide to get the Pfizer or the Moderna, unfortunately, is still not really your choice at this stage. Sure. It still has to be done by uh, the healthcare profession or provider. But the reality is that once you've got that first dose and you've waited those 28 days, you may be able to uh, at least interact in a personal way with individuals. You may still need to wear masks. You may still need to sort of social distance and that. You're probably not going to be able to get some hugs yet. Ah, oh, come on. But I know, I know, it's tough. <laughs> it's driving but, uh, us absolutely bloody bonkers. And, and, and we know that. we're doing the right thing. We know we're doing the right thing. But, oh, man, it's, it's maddening, isn't it, huh? Okay, let me just put it to you this way. One of the big problems that we have right now is the fact that it has taken a very long time for AstraZeneca to get that approval. It has the approval now. Yeah. We're going to have Johnson & Johnson shortly, and then we're going to have Novavax after that. When we have all five in play, it is going to be very quick when it comes to everybody getting a vaccine. It's going to be very similar to what we do with the uh, flu vaccine every single year. Um, when that happens, we'll probably be bringing forward the timelines. So if you are going to be seeing your grandchildren in the summer, I would say that there's a good likelihood you may be able to get close to them. But I would prefer to be on the conservative side and say you'll see them, but you may still have to use the current uh, protections, the ABCs that I call them for the moment. Okay, now Marcus's question was also along the same lines, and he left it with Julian and it boils down to this. After I get vaccinated, will I still have to wear a mask, Jason? Yes. Uh, we take the masks off when we have a certain percentage of the population uh, vaccinated. And that looks to be around 60 to 70 percent. And that's one of the reasons why, for me at least, I still believe that around late August to early September, we'll be putting an end to this pandemic because we should have that vaccine out to that no many people. And one other thing you need to realize, the people who are uh, hesitant to vaccines, the people who are protesting out there, they actually only make up about one fifth of the population. Right, right. So even if they don't get their vaccine, we're going to be able to vaccinate enough people to get us to that elimination threshold that we can take our masks off. Yeah, they're, they're talking about 70% sort of being the herd immunity minimum and if one-fifth of the population that boosts it to 80% so that's a pretty yeah. effective herd immunity job then isn't it? Exactly. And the other thing is that it's not just people who are vaccinated. It's people who also ended up actually getting the vaccine and, and happen to be what we call seropositive. In other words, they're producing antibodies to uh, the virus simply because they had the infection. Jason, there are millions of test kits sitting in Canadian warehouses this morning. Uh, for some reason, provincial jurisdictions and the feds can't seem to get together on this. What should we do with all of those test kits? We can't let them go to waste. Where would they best be most effective? Well, the big problem that we face with respect to rapid testing is that it's only about 90% effective, okay? 
And while that may be great for a vaccine, when you're trying to stem the spread of a particular type of virus, it makes it very difficult. Uh, put it this way. If you are having a pregnancy test, you want that to be as close to 100% as possible, sure. correct? <laughs> yeah. Same idea. So the idea is that when you're developing what we call a diagnostic algorithm, and, and what this means is we're trying to identify who may actually have the virus, you have to take into account what we call presumptive positives, and that's where the uh, the rapid tests come into play, and then actual or confirmed positives, which is what is done in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. We're still sort of deciding between the federal and the provincial governments where we should be using these presumptives. For me personally, the presumptives really should be in places where you really don't want people entering. So let's just say if uh, you have a place where you, um, you know, like hospitals, uh, long-term care facilities, these types of things, this is where having a presumptive positive might be a good test to have. Sure. Schools, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. Shopping malls, nah, no. Um, concerts, it's not going to do any good for you. So it's really a matter of finding which places are going to be the best ones and it's it really is tough to decide when you are at a point, especially now where we're you know at the crux of having vaccinations everywhere. It, it kind of is going to make and I, and I hate to say this, but these these diagnostic tests for prevention of spread may end up actually being moot, and they're going to be more used for what we call at home testing, just like you do for pregnancy tests, and just like they tried to do for HIV. Uh -huh. You essentially you know spit into it and you find out whether or not you have the COVID or whether you just have a common cold. Well, okay. Either way, it would be just a darn shame to see them all go to waste. So let's find an application for them and get them out there and, and make them as useful as they possibly can be. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, Oh, absolutely. Um, but by the same respect, how many times have you bought a piece of equipment to work out at home and saying, I'm going to work out at home, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and it just sits in the corner oh, and does nothing? It's the best dust gatherer you ever bought. I get absolutely. you there. Jason, thanks for this. It's always a treat to have you join us on the program, and our listeners appreciate your calm voice and uh, solid expertise. Thanks for doing it. We'll do it again soon. Hey, no problem. Take care. There's Jason Tetro joining us from Edmonton this morning. And, of course, you can catch Jason on, at the Super Awesome Science Show. Our guest is joining us from the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. He is Blake Schaefer, Schaefer rather, an assistant professor in the Department of Economics and in the School of Public Policy, and one of four co-authors of a piece that uh, caught Andrew and my attention the other day at theconversation.com entitled, Why Canada Should Invest in Macro grids for greener, more reliable electricity. And the very first sentence in the article talks about that recent disaster in Texas, macro grids. Blake Schaefer, good morning and welcome to the program, sir. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Professor Schaefer. Talk to us about macro grids. What on earth is a macro grid? Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, simply expanding our connection of transmission. So in, in Canada, we're pretty islanded provincially in our, in our electricity system. So BC has much better connections with the United States than it does with Alberta. True. Alberta has very limited connections with anyone else. And so the idea is simply better connections across all of these very different 
um, electricity systems. You and your colleagues at three other universities across the country did this piece together, Blake. And one of the things you do as the first five words of the article are, as the recent disaster in Texas showed, there's six. Uh, I mean, so this is what, what lessons, what happened in Texas? And what's the key lesson for Canadians to take away from that? Right. Well, complicated uh, issue that went on in Texas. So, you, you know, those of your listeners who aren't aware, they had blackouts in the last week, and the, the proximate cause was extremely cold weather. Yeah, they just simply aren't set up for that. And so, you know, the questions that are coming out of this, and we're going to be discussing the Texas issue for years to come in electricity circles. Mm-hmm. How can they, how could they have better managed through it? Um, you know, what were some of the causes? And one of the takeaways that we're focused on, and I wrote another piece on, for the CBC on this with a, a University of Texas um, researcher, is the fact that Texas is an electric island. They are completely separated from the rest of the United States right. for these BC connections. So having better connections to not just their neighbors, because their neighbors were struggling, but broader connections. For example, California had a surplus of electricity during that time period. Right. And so we're trying to take those lessons back to Canada and say, you know, being able to share with our neighbors when we're in periods of scarcity is, is really valuable for many reasons. So that's a lesson we can learn from Texas for sure. Now, one of the things that I know, perhaps I've misunderstood the arrangement they have in Texas, Blake, but as I understand it, not only are they disconnected from the entire rest of the United States within the state of Texas, there are all these little independent jurisdictions that aren't particularly keen on talking to each other, even within the same state. Somewhat. So, so there's one grid there um, called ERCOT, uh, and it covers about 90% of the state. So with, within ERCOT, that, that is a fully functioning integrated grid. Okay. There are, as you say, a couple other pockets really on the edges. So El Paso being a great example on the western side of Texas. They're their own system, El Paso Electric. They're connected into the western grid. In fact, they're part of the same machine that BC and Alberta are part of, the western interconnect. Um, but El Paso doesn't speak with ERCOT. And uh, we saw some ramifications of that in this event. Uh, you know, the, the percentage of households in the ERCOT service territory that lost, um, that lost power during the outages was very small. You know, I think less than 10% as compared to ERCOT where it was rampant. And so these differences really showed up uh, in where ERCOT was connected to the broader grid and where, where, where Texans weren't. One of the things, though, the Canadians, it's been pretty easy for a lot of Canadians, Blake, to sort of dismiss this whole Texas business out of hand. I mean, gosh, they had a nasty winter storm once and all <laughs> hell broke loose. Well, you know, we have nasty winter storms that last about five months every year. So our power grids and our electricity infrastructure is designed to take all of that. So those poor guys down in Texas, they just didn't have the the tough stuff necessary to keep the power on, to keep the lights on. So we shouldn't worry about that because ours is just better designed. Yeah, well, it's absolutely true. It's what you're designed for. I mean, we here in Alberta, we look to BC when you get a large snowfall and how things shut down in BC. Well, that wouldn't happen elsewhere. Same thing. It's not a hardiness of the people question at all. It's It's the very function of, for example, Victoria has no snowplows. So you're not set up. You don't have the infrastructure for this. It's the same thing that happened in Texas. Um, You know, here in Alberta, we go through cold spells, much colder and longer. And yet 
we see our power infrastructure and our natural gas infrastructure, moreover, withstand that completely. Sure. That's because we insulate our separator units. We add methanol to the, to the uh, gas lines to keep water from freezing within them. Texas doesn't do that. So they have, you know, they have their sensors, they have pipelines, they have separator units just sitting outside um, for, in the elements. And so they, they simply weren't winterized to the degree we have. And that's the big discussion that's happening down there. Is right. To what extent do they pay for that? One of the lessons we have here is not about can we withstand winter storms? We're, we're, we're built for that. Are we ready for more extremes in the summer? Mm-hmm. Because increasingly we're going to start seeing peak electricity demands show up in the summer. Currently we're, we're by and large a winter peaking system in most provinces in Canada. But I, I did some research with one of the co-authors here, Nick Rivers, where we looked at what climate change will do to the, to the shape of electricity demand in the future as people buy more air conditioners and yeah. hotter. And we, we certainly expect by, you know, by mid-century, if not sooner, actually definitely sooner, it will be peaking demand in the summer. And are we ready for that, both our buildings, but also our power infrastructure, our cooling ability, etc.? And Blake, the elephant in the room in this conversation so far is electric vehicles. My gosh, every government in this country, to say nothing of the feds, is falling over backwards trying to persuade us. They're giving us uh, generous grants and bribes and all sorts of things to get out there and buy electric cars and trucks and so on. So as our uh, our power demands go forward, and you're describing perhaps with climate change a greater demand in Canada uh, on our electrical system in the summertime than we already have in the winter, um, then there's the whole matter of power our fleet of electric vehicles that we don't have yet, but they're anxious to see us driving. So what are we going to get that power? Yeah, so th- so there's two challenges to meet there. One easy, one harder. So the easier one is the one we, I think we often think about is we just need some quantum of energy, of electricity to power all of these new demands. So as you point out, there'll be a lot more demand on the electric electrical grid. Um, it's actually surprisingly less than you might think because of the better efficiency of electric vehicles okay. relative to internal combustion. But um, yeah, we'll need more electricity. But getting that energy is actually not a challenge. We've got lots of sources of cheap energy now. Um, renewables compared to where they were a few years ago, it's just night and day in terms of cost. So we, we have the ability to build a lot of cheap energy. The, the challenge is getting it when we want it. Mm-hmm. And that's the real problem. That's, you know, Texas doesn't have an energy problem. They ran into a capacity problem for a week. And we're going to be facing this as we go forward, especially as we add more renewables to the grid because they give you lots of energy, but they don't give you that on-demand power. So, you know, it's uncontrollable or, or intermittent. So the real challenge is, can we get electricity when we want it? And that's where things like demand response, so getting the customer to shift their demands, um, according to when supply is there, and, and a lot of that's going to happen behind the scenes. Um, that's one option. Mm-hmm. The other option that we're bringing up in this article is bigger transmission lines, so that if you have one part of Canada where wind is abundant, that, that power, instead of being wasted, can go to other regions where perhaps there's no wind at the time. Or in British Columbia's case, it can power the lights in British Columbia, and you can hold water behind your dams, 
And then when the wind isn't blowing in places like uh, Alberta, you release that water and you power your cells and send energy back to Alberta. So that's sort of the impetus for better connections is to manage all of this these variable renewables that are coming online in a much more efficient manner. Yeah, I suppose. And we'll talk more about that after we take a break. But I, I guess just before we do the break, Blake, uh, the most surprising a- aspect of this whole Texas uh, power failure uh, from this perspective, from this distance, is the fact that there are 30 million people in Texas. Next door in California, there are almost 40 million. More people live in California than live in Canada. And they had a surplus of power, not quite next door, but pretty darn close by physically. And they were not able to share surplus power from California down into Texas, where they had this nasty winter storm and desperately needed it. How how elementary is that? Well, that, that is sort of the impetus for better transmission connections. So Texas peak demand hit about 70,000 megawatts. So for perspective, BC's demand is about 10,000 megawatts. Okay. But the lines going into Texas, so the ability to move any power in, is about 1,000. So it's, you know, it's, it's tiny. Yeah, it's tiny compared to it. Uh, Alberta and and BC have about a thousand megawatt connection. So much smaller um, regions, but even still, we have a decent sized connection. But we argue in this piece that's still too small. BC and uh, the US have about 4000 megawatts. So you do a lot of trade um, with the states. And I should disclose I used to work at PowerX. So I know a fair bit about that trade. Mm. Um uh, PowerX being the trading arm of BC Hydro. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, California has very minimal ability to to move power into ERCOT. Really, any region in the United States has minimal ability to move power in ERCOT. I got a call from a journalist during the event saying, "Should Canada be sending power down to Texas to help them out?" I said. We're absolutely sending anything we can at the moment. It's not our ability to do so that's limiting. It's their ability. It's to their ability it. to receive what do we yeah. say. We have in, in, in abundance to, to send them. And I guess because it's 2021, most people are going, really? You can't do that? And, and you're as this sophisticated in so much of the rest of your infrastructure, you can't transfer power from one jurisdiction to another? Just mind-boggling stuff. Joined by Professor Blake Schaefer from uh, the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. He is a co-author of a piece at theconversation.com entitled Why Canada Should Invest in Macrogrids for Greener, More Reliable Electricity. And, of course, we're focusing a lot on the example set for us, however, unwittingly, by the state of Texas and that nasty, almost Canadian-type storm they had for a day or two a week or so ago. Uh, you talk about strengthening. Now is the time to strengthen transmission links in Canada, Blake Schaefer. We have an electric infrastructure that you've described with some pockets having some, some having none, and the connections between, say, Alberta and British Columbia limited to uh, a specific number. So is uh, a strengthening our expansion links is about doubling, trebling. What 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 do we want to do to our capacity to share between provinces? Yeah. So in terms of specific numbers, two of my co-authors, actually Brett and, and Nick, have, have looked at this a model of Canadian electricity infrastructure and, and have some more of those details. But by and large, it is simply about expanding the east-west transfer capability. Right. So like we mentioned earlier. Lots of ability to move power between Canadian provinces and the U.S. for good reason. Bigger markets down there. Mm -hmm. Um, But expanding the ability to move them east-west is something that we've 
sort of long haven't done. And it, it, that's where the, the focus is uh, in our in our piece, for sure. Does it represent an enormous amount of investment, Blake? Or is this because we have the existing power infrastructure already there? We just need stronger connections between certain points. Is it affordable? It'll be costly, but in the long run, it actually does lower the cost of changes because what you it allows you to do, I mean, as a, as a practical example, uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan have much cheaper wind and solar resources yep. than their neighbors, you know, yourself in BC, as well as Manitoba. And so the bulk of wind and solar development makes a lot of sense to happen here in Alberta and Saskatchewan. But at a certain point, we'll saturate ourselves and we'll have a, a tough time handling their variability and that's where bc and manitoba shine because Mm -hmm. you've got the flexible hydro systems and so you know building more variable renewables in in the in the prairie provinces or the middle provinces there and having better connections to manitoba and bc to integrate that actually lowers costs all around uh, because you can share these resources even after you include the cost of the transmission. So that's some of the, the research work that, that Brett and Nick and, and as well Kent has done uh, on that specific question. This is, uh, this is uh, an important issue. Uh, it relates to climate change. It relates to our ability to be self-sustainable and a lot of other. It touches on a lot of, of, of dots. It's not a terribly sexy election issue, however, Blake. Do you see any appetite for any of the political parties in what we expect to be an election sometime later this year to even address this subject? Yeah, I mean, I find electricity in general, even though it's been my, my career for 20 years, is not a sexy topic. <laughs> Most people don't want to hear about it. They simply want their lights on. That's right, right. When you hear about electricity, it's normally in a bad sense. It's normally something like Texas. Um, I think there is a positive political angle here, though, and it, and it stems federally. And, you know, provincially, you're going to have a tough time. You know, take the B.C. Alberta example. They typically don't cooperate that well at the electrical system. Our two governments, maybe even at the political level, are right. exactly best friends. Uh, but this is a really good opportunity federally. Because when you think about where this is placed, it's an opportunity, especially this Western focus, to show some federal support into the West, which is something the West is always clamoring about. But moreover, it fits in their larger um, goal of a net zero Canada, a net zero energy system for Canada. If we are going to decarbonize pretty much any study you look at, be it the U.S., be it Europe, the limited number we've got in Canada, will all show significant expansion of transmission. You simply can't get to the level of decarbonization without significant levels of transmission if you want to do it in a cost-effective manner. Um, you know, the idea of having uh, batteries all over the place is, is sort of, it, it's promising, but batteries typically are shorter uh, duration in life, so, or, or sorry, in cycle. Mm-hmm. So it, you are going to have to have bigger transmission connections to move all of these cheap renewables around our system. And so it, it fits into their goals of decarbonizing. And, and we here in Alberta, you don't have that problem in BC. You're a pretty much decarbonized grid. You're set up already. But to get Alberta off of natural gas in, say, 30 years, this is going to be a big challenge. And we have limited options available to us. Nuclear, perhaps, is one. Right. Uh, carbon capture is one. But transmission is one of those options that makes a lot of sense. And it's somewhere where the feds can come in and play a big role because at the end of the day, 
like you pointed out, this is going to cost money. And so all they really need to do is, you know, come in with the with the ability to bring money to the table. We'll, we'll bring a lot of these provincial governments to want to talk. Blake, I've only got a minute left, and it's, it's unfair of me to only have such a limited amount of time, but I would appreciate your thoughts on the announcement a couple of days ago by the Premier of BC that the Site C Dam is going to go forward despite just a staggering cost overruns, et cetera, and further delays. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, a minute's probably a bit tight. <laughs> but, um, you know, my, the overall take is clearly that the, the project should never have begun. So if we had a time machine, we'd want to go back and stop it at right. $16 billion. The problem is all of the decisions are always based on go-forward costs. So even though the total is 16 he said that the cost that's already been sunk and the cost to terminate has been 10 So really the difference, what you have to spend to finish it relative to close it, is 6 Right, And this is exactly where he was three years ago. I think at that time it was about 10 to, to complete versus mm-hmm. 4 to finish. So again, it's 6. So you're constantly in that situation where it's only 6 to complete. And at 6, you know, it is an on-the-fence project. I, my personal inclination is it probably makes sense for the capacity value at 6. Um, but the problem, of course, is it's, it's constantly 6 to go forward, but the total keeps increasing. Yeah. And so always the big problem is are we certain that the cost is going to stop, you know, at 16 now. And there's no certainty involved in any of this. Blake, I have to leave it there. And I, I we, well, next time we talk, we'll give you much more time on Site C because it is only going to get bigger and bigger going forward. And I look forward to an opportunity to continue this discussion soon. Thanks for this this morning. Good to have you on the show. You bet. Thank you. There's Blake Schaefer, professor of economics in the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. It's time to talk mortgages and all of the news that's coming out of the real estate business these days. The market, they say, is back on fire with bidding wars and price hikes and and activity, the likes of which we haven't seen around Metro Vancouver in two or three years. Uh, And of course, we've had a move by one of the private banks, the TD, on Friday afternoon to increase its mortgage rate. So is it time to lock in? What about if you're renewing? Is it time to go for a full five or are 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 you comfortable riding that variable rate. Have we reached the bottom as far as low rates go and now there's nowhere to go but up? Lots of questions this morning and Angela Calla, the host of the Mortgage Show here on CKNW, is back with us this morning to have a go at your calls and what's going on in the crazy world of real estate. Angela, good morning and welcome back. Oh, good morning, Sterling. Pleasure to be here this morning with you. Well, it's nice to have you back with us. And of course, the market has taken off. Typically, in any uh, real estate market in, in this city, uh, spring is the time of year that we see the most activity year in and year out. We didn't have much last spring. We were all locked down, Angela. And spring appears to have started a whole lot earlier this year than in previous years. Uh, are, is, are we making up for that lost activity last year this time around? There's a variety of reasons for that, yes. And this January was the first time that home purchases surpassed um, mortgage consolidations. Mm. So yes, this January was very, very busy. And more than ever, and as a result of the initial lockdown, people are really understanding that their homes are places where not only they lay their head to sleep before they go on with their busy days, but it's now where people are working and it's now where people are educating their children. So with all that in mind, the space where people are has never been more important to them. 
them sure. to be able to ensure that they can live their lives to the best quality for their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And what we've also seen from an economic standpoint is people have either decided that being together for all this time has pushed relationships to the brink of divorce mm-hmm. and now they want to move forward. And our Facebook feed and calls and emails have all been, oh my gosh, we're expecting another child. We're going to need more room. Right. So it's either brought you together or apart. And so with that being magnified, of course, the supply is, is an issue right now. And so there are some risks that come with that as well. Well, I suppose. And that's the big deal. That's the big problem right now, isn't it, Angela? Because you've got all of this pent-up demand and, and any of the uh, the statistical gathering agencies will also tell you we are at a, at a point with, with an, an, just an enormous surplus of cash sitting on the sidelines right across Canada. Uh, and so you've got a few factors contributing to uh, uh, everything being uh, energetic in the real estate sector except for listings. So you've got a lot of people who are keen to go and keen to get going bidding for a very limited number of properties. Is that what's driving prices uh, through the roof as quickly as it has been recently? It has. You know, Sterling, there are certainly are risks. It's a difficult time, I understand, for agents and for individuals. Um, however, when you get into a situation where you know there's going to be more than a few offers, I really question if it's valuable to be more than one of six. Yeah. You know, we we hear people participating um, in offers where they know that there's more than a few. And I, I, I really just question why they feel they need to participate in that, especially because it just makes things more pent up than than necessary. I feel that if you know a few offers are coming in, let them deal with those and then determine where it is. And I'll tell you, we had a situation in Maple Ridge um, a few weeks back and absolutely this client needed a subject to finance. There was no question uh, based on all the exceptions that were going to be required to be reviewed once a property was added into the, to the mix. Mm-hmm. And this client decided to bid $100,000 over the list price for a single family home in Maple Ridge. And this mortgage was insured. Now in Canada, we have three Canadian mortgage insurers, and that means that she was placing less than a 20% down payment down. Okay. And the lender, once they had an accepted offer, sent out their own appraisal to be done on the property. And the appraising company for the bank did not agree with the price that the client was willing to pay. So Uh just because you and I believe and are willing to pay a specific price for a house does not mean that the bank and the insurer will agree with that value. Uh And at, at that point, your options are to make up the difference of that amount with cash and either you're going to have that cash on your own or you're going to have to get that cash from a family member. And, um, that's, you know, the consideration that a lot of people have to make. The banks are really carefully watching this overheated market. And just because money is inexpensive doesn't mean that they're in a rush to give it to you. They want to do their due diligence and they do not want to be sitting on something that they can potentially 
you know, have a concern on and value is something that they're not just accepting what someone is willing to pay at this time. Now, good point, too. And, and, and you also talk, you mentioned the word risk at least a half a dozen times already. And it's lovely to hear, frankly, because one of the risks, and I think from, uh, from just a buyer's point of view, Angela, one of the things, one of the biggest risks of being involved in a bidding war is that you, you know, you'll submit your offer and you know other people are doing exactly the same thing. So you cross your fingers and hope you get it, etc. But you know that you can't, you, you, you're not going to get a house inspection. You're not going to have the luxury of walking through the property and uh, literally taking it apart in your mind, uh, and uh, especially with the uh, services of a professional inspector, get an idea of not only what it's going to cost, but what it's going to cost to to make you live in it happily. There's always modifications that are going to be required. And if you're in a bidding war, all of that, that's a luxury that simply disappears. Well, and that's a risk that you are absorbing and there's no one that you can transfer that risk to, regardless of how much due diligence you do. And in addition to that, what I've seen as well with this is that not only are some appraisers or banks not agreeing with the price, but they're not agreeing with the economic value. So today with prices as they are, Mm -hmm. you could imagine people need 25-year mortgages. They need 30-year mortgages. And if if the appraiser does not agree, the bank's appraiser does not agree that the structure of the home will remain for the appraised time for the mortgage, then you have to take a shorter mortgage amortization, which means that you could not qualify at all for that mortgage unless, again, somebody comes on and co-signs, gives you money to pay out a debt, comes up with more money down. So these are all risks that you as an individual are absorbing when you put yourself in that situation. But I also think about the person who accepted that offer, if we want to really dig deep into that, Mm -hmm. you know, it should be considered that um, just because people are going and making these subject free offers because they have to, maybe dig a little deeper into the actual offer and see what the buyer's abilities actually are when you're considering it. Just don't only consider the highest price. And I think as a society, we kind of have to shift from that. And I feel that everybody should have a due due diligence period. So there is one segment in the market, for those of you who are listening, there is one segment in the market where you're not dealing with competition right now and you actually do have seven days of rescission and what's that that is pre-construction oh right now yeah right now by law if you purchase a property that hasn't been built or is in the process of being built you automatically have a seven day rescission clause so you can go over the pros and cons your financial budget and ensure that that property and that purchase price meets your needs and you can consider all the things coming up that will impact your ability to be able to be comfortable in that home so you have and, you have uh, seven days to once you've agreed to okay we're we're interested in this condo near Brentwood it's not finished yet but when it is we'd like mm-hmm. to, we'd like to be on the 24th floor thank you but then you've got you've got seven days to to go home digest all of that and possibly reconsider Exactly. And, and ensure that the decision that you're making is really the best one financially and, of course, emotionally and physically for your family. So that is, and, and this is something in other provinces, if you look at Quebec, it's automatic that you have 10 days to rescind. Mm. So there are other provinces that are doing things differently. We already have this in new construction. And I have spoken with the, uh, 
previous housing minister and finance minister looking to bring something like that in for existing construction because I feel there's more to inspect and there's more considerations when we do have an existing property than something that's so that hasn't been built yet that's going to be under warranty for 10 years. Joined on the line by Angela Calla, host of CKNW's Mortgage Show and also author of The Mortgage Code, helping you move up the property ladder, get the best mortgage, avoid costly mistakes, and save money. Now, you've had the proceeds from said book going to various charities since it's been written a few years ago, Angela. Where are you directing the returns from the book this year? Ah, this year, the YWCA are getting all the proceeds, and that goes to single mothers and children in their in our communities. And in Coquitlam, we actually have Como Lake Gardens, which is the residence for the YWCA women. So it's it's been a privilege. Well, good stuff. And I hope you sell lots more copies too. Uh, the, the burning question, TD raised its bank by a, a quarter of a percentage point Friday afternoon. The central bank, the Bank of Canada is committed to this uh, 0.25 lending rate indefinitely. The private banks are not tied to that at all. And uh, they're seeing the writing on the wall. TD's already upped its mortgage rate. Others are expected to follow as early as tomorrow morning. Is Have we hit at rock bottom in terms of bank mortgage interest rates and is it time to lock in Angela So I think it's important to clarify how fixed rates are are determined and how variable rates are determined okay. they're determined by two different things So fixed rates are based on the bond market and the variable rate is based on the Bank of Canada So Looking at what's happened is, yes, fixed rates have gone up at least a quarter percent Mm -hmm. by most banks and private institutions already because of some interesting information in the stock market over the last week or so. So with that in mind, what this cost actually is and who it impacts is it only impacts people who are actually going to buy a house pre-approved right now. Okay. And it impacts their cost $12 per 100000 in mortgage. Mm-hmm. Now, rates are still at record lows and rates really could go up another 2% because what's important to understand is anybody who's shopping for a mortgage right now, they're qualified at a rate of 4.79%. So this makes no difference in their qualifications. It's just in the cost of borrowing for them. Ah, but it's still in terms of long horizon planning uh, and, you know, it's the certainty. And boy, we've just lived through a year of just multiple uncertainties, Angela, and a lot of people looking for some certainties in their lives. And a five-year locked-in mortgage is certain. You know, for the next five years, at the end of every month, exactly how much money you're going to be responsible for. It is. And fixed rates are still 2%, you yeah. know, within the 2% range. So that's, it's incredibly low. Yeah. So it's no reason to panic whatsoever. Nobody should be panic. You know, nobody should be pressing the panic button. Nobody should be, um, losing sleep over it. A five year fixed rate is a good option. Another consideration is that the Bank of Canada has come out and Tiff Macklem has said, you know, based on the economic activity and their plans at the Bank of Canada, that they intend to keep the variable rate mortgage at where it's at. Okay. Now, 
you know, variable rate is a good option for many borrowers. And again, it doesn't change the, the impact and qualifications. There's a lot of people that are saying, oh, absolutely, you know, stay variable. That means that it'll stay low. But what experience has demonstrated to me, Sterling, in doing this for over 16 years is that when the variable rates are this low and the banks are looking at how to make money, generally what they'll do is they'll make the variable rate less attractive because they'll actually increase the rate. So as an example, if you could get a variable rate and the bank variable rate compared to the Bank of Canada are two separate things. You're not borrowing at the Bank of Canada rate. You're borrowing at the bank prime rate. Yep. Um, with that in mind, they make the discounts less attractive. So as an example, you might be able to get a variable rate at, say, prime minus 75 or prime minus 1. What I've seen happen in experience and economic crisis and these types of scenarios is I've seen them change it to now variable mortgages are prime plus 1 or uh-huh. prime plus a half. Sure. So I've seen that in my experience. So when I see some brokers or some you know people saying, oh, well, that doesn't mean there's going to be an impact with variable rates, I really say proceed with caution. And there's no one-size-fits-all. But you cannot go wrong getting in a locked-in fixed mortgage rate around 2% in this day and age. Yeah, 2.24%. Yeah. Yeah, Sterling, you and I have seen interest rates of over five and over 10, <laughs> you know, within our careers. And, oh. and we could talk about, you know, the decades ago, but the reality is there's people who have had mortgages in the last 15 years that have never seen an interest rate above 5%. That's right. So, you know, it's incredibly important that the mortgage partner that you select has an inflation hedge strategy. So you're making periodic changes to your mortgage to ensure that even if rates go up, that your mortgage payment will not go up upon renewal. And that's really the comfort that you get when you align with a mortgage professional that's going to assist you throughout the duration of having a mortgage. So there's no need to panic. Yes, fixed rates have gone up, but at this point in time, it only impacts those who are in the market to buy a home. And it looks like about $12 per 100000 and that does not make a change to their qualification at all because they were already qualified at a rate of 4.79%. Let's go to the phone board. James has been waiting for a little bit to have a say on this program. James, thanks for your patience. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Angela, I have two questions for you. I want to know whether or not the banks and the mortgage institutions are worried about negative equity now when it comes to giving out mortgages on properties in Vancouver because of the inflated rates. And the other question that I have is whether or not you can ask a developer for an estimate on what condo insurance is going to cost on a new development with the whole kerfuffle with getting condo insurance these days. Uh, good questions, both of them. And I'll just uh, send you back to your radio and let uh, Angela have a go. How about negative equity first? Hi, James. Uh, that's why the banks are so diligent in ensuring that the appraisals are done and that they're comfortable with the value of the property. And with rates as low as they are right now, you're getting more than a 50% contribution. You're getting about 70 to 80% contribution of principal over interest mm-hmm. into your payment. So that's of no concern of the banks at this point in time. And also they don't allow you to refinance your home over um, 80% of its value either. So the banks have policies in place um, to ensure that they're always protected in that regard. And in addition to that, for your second question for developers and, and condo, condo insurance, insurance, yeah. 
Yeah. There's no way that they can guarantee or, or estimate what that is, but you should definitely speak with an independent insurance broker. And that market is consistently changing. And the government has even put together a council to discuss the insurance industry and how they can revamp that. So at this time, what we have seen from experience is purchasing a new condo is uh, more beneficial because obviously it meets the current uh, building guidelines. Sure, yeah. And of course, there's a 10-year warranty on it. So in terms of condo insurance, it's one of one of the better ones. And of course, there can be exceptions to that as well, depending on the specific development in the area and the top graph- geographical issues in that area. Um, but definitely just always expect that, um, you know, your budget should should be padded to mod- to be prepared for that. All right. So uh, your questions, James. Oh, yeah. Thanks very much, James. I'm afraid we're fresh out of time, Angela. I'm always grateful for yours uh, as uh, the, the and we want one very with 30 seconds here. How many people have decided because the limited the listings are so few that rather than invest in something and get into a bidding war and overpaying for something to heck with it. Let's just spruce up the old joint and do some renovating instead. That is absolutely the best option. If you are considering a renovation instead of moving, that should be priority number one. Okay. Well, then, then there you, and it's <laughs> uh, financing is also uh, available for such projects at, again, pretty attractive rates these days. Absolutely. Angela, it's thanks. in your best interest, and you save all those real estate costs as well. <laughs> There's a little bit of that as well. Angela, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for making time for us this morning. You're welcome. Always a pleasure to be here. Enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks for tuning in. You betcha. There's Angela Calla, host of uh, The Mortgage Show on Saturday nights here on CKNW. And you can also find her online at angelacalla.ca. Angela has one L's. Uh, Calla has two. angelacalla.ca. It's time to uh, step back and take a look at the big picture for a few minutes on the program today. We're delighted to welcome Stephanie Levitz to the program. Stephanie is with the Canadian Press. She is a Parliament Hill reporter, uh, self-described. I have to read this to you because I couldn't write something like this. Uh, the self-description is one part Anne Shirley, one part Harriet the Spy, but not a redhead. Currently covering politics, immigration, and general news for the Canadian press. From Ottawa, Stephanie Levitz joins us. Good morning, and thanks for being with us, Stephanie. Hey, Sterling. It's great to talk again. Well, it's good to have you with us, and it's great to, to take a, a look at the big picture. You wrote a piece the other day uh, about Erin uh, O'Toole, who, to the surprise of, well, frankly, probably millions of us, Stephanie, is has been on the job officially already now six months and a couple of days. Uh, and it, uh, I have to tell you, from here on the West Coast, and I know he was just out here talking to the Board of Trade a few days ago, etc. The the general consensus here still is Aaron who? That's about yeah, as, then- That's about as far as he's got. And that's definitely something, you know, he's trying to counter because uh, honestly, Sterling, that's the exact title of the ad campaign he's now running. I saw a print ad of all things in the newspaper here this weekend, encouraging people to go Google him to figure out who he is and to go to his website and learn a lot about him. So he certainly is you know, remains unknown amongst the vast majority of Canadians, I would say. Now, is part of that because of the deliberate uh, opposition coming from the Trudeau camp? I mean, they're very accomplished, the Liberal Party, period, at smear campaigns and drive-bys and all of this sort of thing, and innuendo till the cows come home. And they've uh, dropped a few bombs on O'Toole since he's got his job. Uh, is any of that starting to wear on him? 
Well, I mean, if you think about it from just from the general public, the question is, you know, to what extent is the general public paying attention to politics? To what extent when the liberals try and score these political points, is that the Aaron O'Toole that is sticking in people's minds? Yeah. There's been a number of surveys, right, saying that Aaron O'Toole's negatives, uh, you know, how people view him, the negatives are higher than the positives. And that definitely has to be a result of what the liberals have managed to do. But if you're a conservative, um, some of those negatives are what you know people refer to as own goals, mistakes that the O'Toole team has been making since he became leader. Uh, a lot of them are sort of inside baseball things, but they don't sit well with the conservative party. They don't sit well with the base, the grassroots. And right now they don't, they're not even sitting well with some of the most senior members of the party. And so, you know, he's not particularly well known at this point, um, well liked by the vast majority of Canadians, that sort of general public political people. And then within his party, there's a lot of people saying, what are you doing? And mm-hmm. is there time to fix it before we go to a next election? Interesting stuff, because again, and, and that part is completely unknown, because I guess it's because O'Toole is unknown. And I know for a fact that here in Western Canada, Stephanie, you've spent a great deal of your career in Western Canada. You know what I'm talking about. There's a lot, there are a lot of disappointed conservatives who felt really betrayed by Andrew Shear, who did not get the job done, who didn't even reflect their values very effectively. So now we've got a new guy. He's an ex-Air Force guy. He's got some he's got some spine in him, and he's going to get mad when he needs to. And we haven't seen very much of that at all. Yeah, I mean, part of the challenge, of course, he has, and any leader of the opposition would have right now, is that we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Of course. So there's a number of things that are, you know, problematic. There. One is that Aaron and even, like, you know, his, by extension, the MPs in caucus, they can't get out. They can't be doing the sort of retail politics that help you build a brand. That's one. The second part is on a question of policy. There's not a lot going on right now in Ottawa. I mean, the the government has maybe half a dozen or more pieces of legislation out there, but the vast majority of their time and energy is being taken up on COVID. And as it should be, obviously, the vaccine rollout right now being the number one issue. But the question becomes, how does the opposition sort of run the twin track that it has to, which is keeping the government accountable, making sure they're transparent, but also presenting a vision of what they would do if they themselves were government. Mm-hmm. And this is where the O'Toole team really seems to be falling down right now, because it's they're not really advancing many ideas of their own. Aaron O'Toole keeps getting asked in press conferences, you know, with the Ottawa media here, well, okay, let's assume that you were prime minister right now. What would you do? How would you do it differently? And he pivots and he dances and he doesn't answer the question. Right. And Um, I think that's frustrating to folks in his own caucus who really want to see his party being presented as an alternative to Trudeau, not just the challenger, and they've scored some good political points there, but as an alternative. And and that's something his team's really going to have to circle around in the coming weeks and months, for sure. And I think that's the disappointment, not only in the conservatives, uh, who, of course, uh, for, for whom he is the team leader, but also just for voters in general. There's a new guy, uh, not much known about him, doesn't seem to be really taking the bit in his teeth and running with it. Uh, th- th- does he ever get mad at anything? There's a lot going on that people are a little frustrated by, uh, and so on. So uh, I, I think, uh, and, and again, it's interesting. Interesting, because you take a look at the polls, Stephanie, and Mr. Trudeau's numbers have gone down, and that's to be expected with the hiccups, and I'm being generous, in the vaccine rollout. But Mr. O'Toole's numbers have also gone down, and that's a bit of a surprise. They should be the opposite. You would think. I mean, that's generally, you know, the nature of the poll. So then it becomes, you know, if an election were held today type question, yeah. right? where do folks go? Where do they park their vote? 
Do they leave it? I mean, you know, if we look at the um, provincial elections that have been held over the course of the pandemic, by and large, voting publics seem to favor the incumbent in a matter of crisis, right? They want stability. They don't want major change. And the federal conservatives, what they're banking on at this point is that the next time Canadians go to the polls, the worst of the pandemic is behind us. Vaccines are in as many arms as possible. Mm -hmm. Things are starting to stabilize. And the ballot box question does not become a referendum on how well Justin Trudeau handled the pandemic, but instead becomes a referendum on, okay, how are we going to rebuild the country? And that's a good, you know what, that's a good time to go to an election. Canadians ought to be able to say, okay, I have a menu of choices about what I want my country to look like in the next two, three, four, six, ten years. Mm -hmm. And every party gets to make their case to Canadians. Conservatives, like inside the bubble here, you know, in Ottawa, the Conservatives will argue it's too early to put out policy because all that will happen is the Liberals will steal their ideas or the NDP will steal their ideas. But you also have to be building some momentum for your team. You have to understand what does it mean to be conservative? And I know I sound super wonkish when I say this, but the Canadian Conservatives have a real opportunity here because also, finally, they're out from the shadow of Donald Trump. Right. So they have room. They have room to grow. They have room to redefine what it means to be conservative in the modern era, post-Trump era. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see if, how they choose to run with that. And, and do they see a world where they can reimagine for Canadians what conservatism looks like? Or are we going back to the Harper era policy of boutique niche tax credits and an environmental policy that nobody believes in? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting you're talking about ideas. Uh, that there, uh, A paucity of ideas, period, is never encouraging uh, uh, from the point of view of the vo- voters. And I also agree with you, by the way, that we understand the role of the opposition. There isn't a voter alive in this country that doesn't get. The leader of the opposition actually gets paid to stand up and go, I'm opposed. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good, good, good. You're doing your job so far. And and that's the part that's missing. And and not only am I opposed, Mr. Speaker, but in, in its place, our party would do this instead. And we're not hearing exactly. any of that. I mean, we heard it a bit earlier in the pandemic, to their credit. Both the both the Conservatives and the NDP did work together to achieve some changes in the in the package of benefits that Canadians have been able to access over the course of the pandemic. Sure. The Conservatives raised issues with some of the loan amounts, some of the problems facing small business. So it's not as though they've been doing nothing at all. Um, but, to, I mean, to your point, Sterling, now we're getting to, you know, the Liberals are, are doing this thing where they're both managing the pandemic and doing things like introducing pretty central pieces of their last political election platform, gun reform, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. We're moving on reforms to the justice system, some measure of dealing with um, op- the opioid crisis to the extent as it reflects in the justice system. And so these are places where the conservatives definitely have the room to say, okay, you know, we like this or we don't like this, and here's what we're going to do. And that's really going to be central in the upcoming debate and vote over the Liberals' environmental legislation, because I think especially for folks out where you are, Sterling, the lack of a credible environmental platform from the Conservatives in the last election was one of the biggest things that sunk them. And so where are the Tories federally going to go? What is the next step for them? Can they do it without repealing the carbon tax? And if they don't, how are they going to sell that to the grassroots voters who, you know, above all, hate the carbon tax just as much or if not more as they hate Justin Trudeau himself? We are joined from Ottawa by Canadian Press Parliamentary reporter Stephanie Levitz. And Stephanie, you were talking before the break about the, the likelihood or the possibility that an election in 2021 could very well boil down to 
a simple referendum on management of the pandemic. I know the Trudeau, Trudeau government is rolling out more issues. They've set aside $100 billion a slush fund for all sorts of, of goodies that they uh, hope to buy votes with. But ultimately, in order for it not to be a referendum on pandemic management, the Conservatives have to prevent, have to step up and have a very dynamic, energetic uh, counterbalance. If that doesn't happen, how do you think the, the public will respond to the Trudeau government's management of the pandemic? Because in politics, Sterling, timing really is everything. And we're talking about, you know, when are we going to go to the polls and what is the mood of Canadians going to be when that happens? Yep. Are we going to go at a point where everybody has their shot, their second vaccine even, and things are about beginning to return a little bit to normal? Because if that's the case, I think people are really looking forward to putting this pandemic to a degree behind them. And yep. the challenge for the opposition parties will be, be to build a narrative around the Liberals and their competence that encompasses how they manage the pandemic, but also goes back farther than that for the Liberals and casts forward. I mean, that's definitely a tagline that the O'Toole Conservatives are already trying to use, right? Like, who do you trust? Who do you trust to manage us going forward? Mm -hmm. And and so that becomes the question. And you're right, you know, the Liberals, the funding for the pandemic, the the CERB, small business loans, all of those programs, I mean, they could be seen as, you know, sort of political payouts, for lack of a better word, but in reality, it's what was needed, right? It was what was needed to sustain Canadians sustain their families, sustain the economy. And, you know, the extent to which what will be interesting to see is how do Liberals wind down those programs? Do they keep them going over the course of the, the election period? And does then the Conservatives have to be, you know, do they end up being styled as the party that will cut your benefits? Right. Well, because it, that's a pretty poignant argument. It's right? also important, though, for the Conservatives to counter that, at least, Stephanie, with the fact that, yes, they did what they needed to do. But in the process of doing what any responsible government would do, the, the Canadian Liberal government has managed to spend more per capita than any government on earth during all of this. They've spent more than they needed to by the sounds of things. Hmm. But what's need? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to apologize and I don't have the same numbers in front of me, Sterling, that you do. I guess the, the question just becomes, what does that mean to need? I think a really relevant question is going to be accountability for the money. Right. Because if they were going to spend all of that money, and I'll give a great example, because I, I'm sure your listeners are just as frustrated with their provincial governments as they are with the federal government, right? Which is the question of the federal government doled out billions of dollars to the provinces to cover everything from testing to safe school reopening to, you know, improvements in law long-term care. And where did that money go? I mean, how is it even humanly possible that we are in the second, if not the third wave of the pandemic, and there are still major outbreaks in long-term care facilities? Yes. At this point, that should not be happening. And that is a massive failure on the part of the provincial governments, because they're ultimately responsible, and the federal government gave them all the money. So, you know, opposition politicians are wise to start demanding, and I know journalists are too, and it's exceptionally frustrating. You can't get the answer. Where did the money go? We know where the checks went for sure. We know where the loan went. We know where the wage subsidies went. But what about the rest of it? Yeah. Did it accomplish what the government said it was going to? And if it didn't, then why didn't it? That's a fair question. And these are good political questions for an election. They certainly are. And it's interesting that, of course, during this pandemic, the government of British Columbia managed to enhance its majority uh, with a, a completely unnecessary provincial election. Uh, they, they need to be asked all of these questions. They're, they're dancing quite a bit of, over a dam right now, so it'd be a good time to really heavy up on them. In the meantime, you did say, and quite accurately, that politics is all about timing. So how about 2021 at all, Stephanie, for timing an election somewhere in the calendar year? 
Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it's a good question. You know, there are folks I know, like, on the NDP side of things who think it's going to happen as early as spring. There are folks on the conservative side of things who think for sure we're looking at fall. There are folks on the liberal side of things who say they're waiting to see where their poll numbers go mm-hmm. and what actually happens with the vaccine rollout. So is it within the realm of possibility that we don't have an election in, in 2021? Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if the numbers, if something happens with the vaccine, if it doesn't go well, I mean, you know, as I say that, I hope to God it does go well and, sure. and it really works and it drives down infection rates. I'm not willing an election upon anybody. Um, but I do, I, I really believe, Sterling, that um, if we get to the point where these emergency supports are going to be to start to be weaned away from the federal government, that they're going to claw back the wage subsidies and stop with the, the new enhanced DI and all of that stuff, that is when we need to go to the polls. So the question becomes, who engineers it? Is it the liberals? Do they poison pill something so the NDP can no longer support them? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, because the conservatives can't bring them down on their own. And the Bloc Québécois, a minority government, is exactly where the Bloc wants to oh, be. Oh, sure. Because in a minority government, they have the most power. In a majority government, they have none. So, <clears throat> really, the most powerful man in Ottawa right now is not Justin Trudeau, and it's not Aaron O'Toole, it's Jagmeet Singh. Interesting. And it comes down to when does he want to engineer the defeat of the liberals if they don't want to do it themselves? So. Uh- and they're the ones, of all the groups, talking about a spring election. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's where they see certain things in their favor um, in terms of the argument being that they will sustain the benefits and push growth in a direction that they say that the Liberals won't do, that's, you know, more inclusive and more all-encompassing. But at the same time, they're making a lot of promises right now, the NDP, that I think resonate with Canadians, except they stray so far into the bounds of provincial jurisdiction that, it's, you know, how, if, if they became a majority, how much could they really achieve? Is, uh, 30 seconds, it's to, to, sure. grossly unfair, but is the mess at defense another payette example of just a bad decision-making uh, by the leadership in terms of appointing the wrong person to the wrong job? And we're talking about Art McDonald, not John Vance. Yes. Um, it, it definitely raises a question about vetting. And whether or not the issue has to be, we have to start looking beyond what's on the paper. Because on paper, lots of folks look really qualified for jobs. And you know what, Sterling, I would not get a job today if they just looked at, I mean, I might get a job today if they just looked at my resume, but I'll definitely get the job if they call around and ask for my references, or I won't. References matter. We have to do the deep, the better deep dives on these senior people now than we have in the past. All right. I'll leave it there. Stephanie, thanks so much for your time. It's great to have you on the show. I've been dying to do this for a long time. We, I enjoyed it. Really. We must do it again sometime. With we, the, we will, sir, for sure. All right. Stephanie Levitz, Canadian Press in Ottawa. Thank thanks you, for sir. this. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. There's Stephanie Levitz in Ottawa, Canadian Press reporter. Uh, her material all over. And you can see her on Power and Politics on the tube as well. And in the Arts Corner on this Sunday morning, we welcome Shirley Zhao from the Lantern City to tell us, well, what it's all about. Shirley, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Hello. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us about the Lantern City. Now, if you go to the lanterncity.ca, uh, there are there's a, a website with a, a special page on top of it with COVID uh, predictions or restrictions and that sort of thing. So tell us about previous years versus this year. Of course. So 
In previous years, we've had our uh, lanterns at the Jackpool Plaza in downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And now with COVID restrictions, you know, um, a lot of these health guidelines are very important to us to follow. Sure. And so it's having these static um, lanterns, they are uh, just static, so people can always visit them and people could be distanced when they see them. But we do have to keep all of these signs in place and warnings so people are aware um, about the safety around these venues. And compared to previously, um, you know, in Jackpool Plaza, it's a very wide space. However, with the restrictions this year, unfortunately, we weren't able to have it at the Jackpool Plaza. So right. the di- main difference is that um, it's a change in venue. Sure. So uh, with the Costa Lunar Lanterns, instead of the, the Jackpool Plaza this year, we've moved to the Vancouver Art Gallery Plaza. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just the same, you know, it's exactly um, just as beautiful and just as welcoming to people. And people are able to see it. Just as accessible, actually. And uh, there's and also, also English Bay. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. We've also found a new venue um, at English Bay. This is very, it's a new venue for us. And so we, people can get to see it alongside the beach and they can visit the other art uh art installations that are there right now. Okay. And so it's it's really important to us that we bring these uh, installations to people in Vancouver and also to BC just in general because, you know, as you mentioned with COVID, um, it's kind of a cold time. And so with these lanterns, we hope to bring some color and um, a reminder about family to people, especially during the winter time. You know, um, for us at the Lantern City, the Lunar New Year celebration is an integral part of the programming. And so we really want to hope to establish Vancouver as um, a prime location for people to visit during the Lunar New Year. Ah. And with the Lanterns, we hope to do that. So throughout Asian cultures uh, is uh, and the celebration of the Lunar New Year, which of course is a huge, big deal, uh, are Lanterns in some cultures a, a part of that celebration then, Shirley? Yeah, um, as, as, uh, so there is something called um, the Lantern Festival, mm-hmm, and that yes. was just recently, a few days ago. And so this is a very important part of uh, many culture celebration of the Lunar New Year. And so with this, we hoped um, the Lunar City can be, or sorry, the Lantern City. Right. It's, it's a way to kind of connect the cultures of uh, the Asian culture, as well as some um, such as indigenous cultures, we have many, many indigenous artists who participate in the Lantern City, and they, they contribute their artwork, and they these are displayed on these lanterns themselves. So this is kind of a way to connect these cultures, and we really welcome artists from any culture to take part. So, for example, um, the Coastal Lunar Lanterns that I mentioned took place at Vancouver Art Gallery Plaza. Yes, right. So these lanterns... Um, they featured the artwork of, you may know, Susan Point. She's a very mm-hmm, well-known sure. Musqueam indigenous artist here. And it, it featured the artwork of her family as well. And so the, the lanterns at the English Bay, these ones are community lanterns. So they are many diverse indi- uh, local artists that take place. So we, we welcome you and the artists every year to participate in. Um, helped participate in this uh, wonderful Lantern City and installation. Shirley, where on, at English Bay specifically can we go to find the uh, the 2021 Lantern City exhibition? Whereabouts along the beach? Sure, they are at uh, 1800 Davie Street. So you may know the laughing statues. Oh, sure. Okay. It's right right up by those. Okay. Well, that's a really central Mm -hmm. spot, too, for everyone to go by. And and that's the idea. Just go by and have a look and enjoy the the beautiful artwork and, uh, and the cultural symbolism it represents. 
Shirley, yes. thank you for this. Thank you so much. And more, more information. Oh, it's a pleasure. LanternCity.ca has more details for you if you're interested. But head up there to the very top of Davy Street, the Laughing Statues, and check out the Lanterns as well. That is our program for today. Thanks to Julie Wong for a splendid ride. Andrew, Andrew Ferreira for all the organizing. Thank you for being with us. Have a terrific week. We'll see you next weekend right here on CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.